Speak softly loud and hold me warm against your heart. I hear your words, the tender trembling. Welcome, everybody, to another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And we have our new lady with us. Alex is with us today again. Fortunately, or tonight, whatever, wherever you're tuning in from what country. Fortunately, we're all over the place. We're finding that out just from the mailbag, which this show is about. My co-writer and friend, Pat. How you doing, everybody? Who happens to be the father of Alex, for the people that didn't listen to the first show. Well, I tell you, this is the only way I can keep my eye on him. If he's on the show, <laughs> what the hell he is. I'm right down the road. There you go. That's great. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Every, right. As you know, every few weeks we do mailbags. We, we we really want this to be a part of the show. You could be a part of the show. Suggest even themes for doing a full show about something you want to hear about, and we'll do it. So let's get into okay. the mailbag. The mailbag. Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to start off by answering a question that was put to me a few weeks ago. Uh, one of the listeners wanted to know what I considered my most interesting case. And, you know, we don't know these questions until they're asked of us. Uh, this is all, all off the cuff. We don't rehearse any of this. So, I I mean, 20 years in the NYPD, I really couldn't come up with something at that time. But I said, next week, I will answer this question. Well, three weeks have gone by and I never did answer the question. So I'll answer it now. Uh, as I said, you know, 20 years, there's so much, but, uh, I worked undercover with uh, with Chinese gangs. I had mentioned it once, but I didn't go into that much detail. Uh, I was in a position where I could get uh, carry pistol, pistol carry licenses issued. And if you know anything about New York, it's next to impossible to get a carry license unless you, you know God, like Gianni Russo does, because he, he's got to carry. But uh, it's very, very difficult to get a, a carry license, and people are willing to pay for them. And if there's any people have to get paid corruption is involved anyway i was put out there to dangle a carrot in in in, uh, in in front of a a big big chinese gangster named johnny eng uh i tell you this guy we used, him and i used to walk down the street in chinatown is very very crowded at any time of the day the crowds used to part like the red sea when we walked down the block he's a very powerful guy anyway uh uh I went to where he was. We started talking. Before you know it, he's buying pistol licenses from me. It's all, all part of this thing. What, and, what uh, year was this? So our, our audience I knows. was just ready to retire. So this was in 88. Uh, the thing is, these Chinese gangs don't deal with anybody that they don't know. Uh, and it helps if you're Chinese. And I don't know if our listeners are aware of this, but I'm not Chinese. Did you know that, Gianni? I'm not Chinese. <laughs> no, I, yeah, Alex, did you know? I thought Chinese? maybe you had surgery. I, I still remember you telling me that when you were growing up, you thought you were Chinese. I thought I was Chinese. In- <laughs> I spent my youth in in, in, uh, in Little Italy, which is basically Chinatown. I mean, it, it's it's all in, now it is it's all intermingled, and it was back then too. But anyway, uh, I I got him to trust me, and this was a major major gangster, and he was paying me for information. When they went to make a move on him, he vanished, and uh, apparently. Uh, he was traced back to the People's Republic of China. And by the way, uh, uh, the uh, you know mainland China 
says that there's no organized crime in their country. Well, he was the head of it. He was uh, head of one of the triads. And they took him back with open arms. So that was all a crock. But he's been there, if he's still alive, he's been there ever since. And this was from 1988. So that was one case. And the other one was I was listening to the radio one day, a 24-hour news station in uh, New York called 1010 Winds. And they're talking about a bank burglary, not to be confused with a bank robbery. And uh, there was an organized crime thing. As Johnny knows, uh, uh, there was a a gang in uh, uh, Brooklyn headed by Anthony Guest by Castle that did bank burglaries. And uh, And very good at it. (laughs) They were very good at it. They were looking for one guy. I don't know if he was involved with uh, Castle or, or some other family. But they were looking for one guy uh, that was still on the loose, whose name I, I won't mention because I understand that he did his time and he went super straight. So I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, uh, I knew him. Uh, not friendly, but I used to see him around because those were the circles you traveled. You go to bars or clubs in Manhattan, you always run into wise guys, always. Uh, anyway, I said, I think I could find this guy. So uh, I went to the FBI. And I, I worked with the FBI for a while until I I, uh, I ran into the guy. And I basically told them, because this was part of the deal, uh, that I wouldn't be leaving and running to make a phone call. I said, I, I want to talk to the guy and uh, tell him to give himself up. And he actually did. He gave himself up. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah. And, and, and he did time. He did his time. And he, uh, he got out. He's an upstanding citizen uh, here. I haven't had any contact with him uh past that night how, but, how uh, much time did he do i think five years well that ain't bad well you, you can you can read into that you know but the, no that's not bad at all well i did five but years it, in a mental institution but to rob a bank if you equate it right you would leave well, there with me a hundred two hundred thousand dollars well, how are you gonna make that in five years bank burglars they would take an entire weekend to get into a bank. Oh, I know what uh, they, they were doing. Rent. They were dressed as Con Edison guys. They'd go through floors. They'd go everywhere. They would generally rent uh, uh, a storefront next to the bank where they'd go in through the roof. Right. And uh, they would do it on a long weekend when there was like a, a, a three-day weekend, 4th of July, whatever. It would take them two days to get in. And once they were in, they didn't go after the vault because you can't get through that. They went after the safe deposit boxes. Safe deposit box. boxes. Yeah. And the good thing about safe deposit boxes is you don't get a lot of complaints when you get your safe yeah, deposit hello. box off because the idea of a safe deposit box is you want to hide the money so the feds don't hear about it. and who, who, whatever else was in there, drugs, jewels. So, uh, you don't. The biggest, get, the biggest safe deposit box job. Uh, and, uh, how could I say this without getting myself involved? <laughs> <laughs> you talk about the hotel Pierre. Yep. That yep. was the most brilliant. They waited, Alex, they waited for New Year's Eve to hit on a weekend so all these people would go to the real banks and get all their stuff out, their jewelry and everything, to put it in the safe deposit box at the Pierre Hotel. Yeah, this, it, by the way, this wasn't a burglary. This was a robbery. Yeah, this was huge. Yeah, they, 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 they went, went in with, with, with guns. and all, There was a lot of people. They knew everything. And uh, was that a assault? No, that's not the one I'm talking about. The one I'm talking about is they went through the storm sewer oh, God, no, this was a, yeah. and went underground. They had all the plants. 
They had Con Edison uniforms. They went through the floor right in the middle of the safe deposit box. And they, 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 they were in it on Sunday. They were out Sunday night. And when they went back down to the safe deposit box, there was nothing in there. <laughs> Did they ever get caught? No. Nope. Yeah, these guys, uh, the only way these guys get caught is if they uh, go at it for too long or they have people in their Treaty, crew. right? Yeah. Well, they have people in their crew. They get pinched uh, and they give them up. Yeah, yep. that or they or they use drugs or they're, they're drinking and they manage to say something in a bar where they figure that they're safe to talk. And there's always an informant in these bars and it leads to their downfall. That's what happened with uh, uh, the guest bike crew. Uh, but anyway, those two cases I thought were my most interesting. Gas gas pipe was a. Uh, I got to know him, and uh, just because I was around certain things at that time, this guy was treacherous. He was the first guy to stop blowing people up. Total lunatic. Amazing guy. He was the guy that that approached those two cops that they eventually called the mafia cops. Right. Yeah, we did a show uh, back when we first started out on them. Uh, Casso had them on a pad. It was a uh, they got four thousand dollars a month each, whether they supplied any information to, to uh, Casso or not. And then he started to use them for hits, because what better people to pick people up in the street than two NYPD detectives? And they would identify themselves, but of course the people they picked up were eventually tortured and killed. <laughs> they weren't so going to call anybody after that. <laughs> but 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 that was uh, that was Anthony Gaspipe uh, Casso's deal. Yep. He, he worked with those two cops exclusively. Those two cops, those who you don't know, were eventually caught, uh, sentenced to prison, and they both died in prison. That's oh, funny. I, I met them when they moved to Las Vegas. They were yeah, like they, they moved to Vegas. They were like movie stars, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> One guy. Uh, was in uh, Goodfellas in, in, in the opening scene where the, the the camera's going through the bar and they said, this is this guy, this is that guy, this is this guy. One of those guys was oh, one wow. of the mafia cops. He was also in uh, Prince of the City. He, ha he had a speaking part. He was a parole officer. That's wild. Uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to be a movie star. That was his thing. And, and how they got... How they got nabbed was a lot of people want to be movie stars. <laughs> well, an undercover approached them in Vegas and said, We got a big name star, and he mentioned some guy who wasn't a part of anything, they just used his name. And the guy, you know, wants to do some coke. Can you, you know, can you get it for them? Now, this guy also, I forget his name, but anyway, he had a screenplay. Everybody has a screenplay written, right? And he said, Okay, I'll do this, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you the blow, but I want to meet the guy. I want to look at my screenplay. Of course, they didn't right. get that far, and they were arrested. And so he lost his he lost his career trying to make his acting career. Yeah. Oh man! Well, he was in quite a few movies, but Crazy. anyway, that those those were the cases. So anyway, emails. Whoa. All right, moving on. Uh, second question. This this one's from Travis. This is actually about uh, the Pablo Escobar story, which is uh, probably one of my favorite uh, stories from the album. I loved how they broke it down. But uh, this guy, he went to the Golden Steer, and they sat in the corner in the Ralph, Ralph Lamb booth, which was next to the Marilyn Monroe booth. Yep. And they had asked their waiter, Brian, about uh, any stories about you, Gianni. And he had ended up telling them about the uh, the Pablo Escobar, uh, shooting Pablo Escobar's guy in that bar in Vegas. Oh, that's wild. The Golden Steer, yeah. for people to know, is on Sahara, 
was a major, major steakhouse at that time before. I mean, they were like the Peter Luger of Las Vegas. Wow. And, Are they still around? And, oh, yeah. It's still there. It's still there, yeah. right off. Right asked, off of. They asked if you have a uh, table there. I I used to go there a lot, actually, late at night. Yeah. They were, they serve steak until six in the morning. No, that place was Vegas crazy. for you. Yeah. <laughs> so they told him the story in my club. That's funny. Yeah. Who, what's the guy's yeah, name? Did he say who his name is? Uh, the waiter's name was Bryant. This guy's name is Travis. Oh yeah, I know who Bryant is. Yeah. They never oh, leave there. Awesome. The tips are so big. He mentions he he mentions Ralph Lamb. He was a sheriff, there, wasn't he? Ralph Lamb was the biggest gangster there was. R Ralph Lamb talking about deputizing and giving guns. When I went to Vegas, you had to get close to Ralph Lamb, and Kurt Kikorian found out the hard way. Kurt Kikorian, as who who don't know, owned MGM Studios. He built the biggest hotel in Las Vegas called the International, and he had. Barbara Streisand opened it on 4th of July weekend for two weeks and Elvis to follow him in. He had a 1,500 room, a 1,500 seat showroom. That's how big this place was. And he kept getting letters from the sheriff's office. You have to come down and get fingerprinted unless you can't open the place. And he laughed at them. He said, I got my game lies. I got it. Who's this guy? And the night before... Opening, the opening, Ralph Lamb said, if you're not down here, by the end of close of business, we're going to, because there's no lock, people don't notice, there's no locks on any hotel door. You can't have a lock on it. None of those hotels close. They got to be open 24 hours a day, and the gaming commission has to have access. So when you look at Vegas, there's no locks on doors. They were going to go, why, why is, that's a part of the story. They were going to go and chain the whole, all the doors, chain them closed until Kirk Kikorian, a multi-millionaire, goes down and gets fingerprinted and meets Mr. Lamb. Unless they were going to open the hotel and he couldn't believe it. He had was to go down. Looking, was he looking for something? Nope. That's yeah. the way he is. You have to have a sheriff's license. It was just protocol. But, I mean, the Lamb family, Darwin Lamb, Ralph Lamb, uh, I forget the other brothers, Senator, I mean, they ran, that, they, they ran that city. And the craziest story, and if you go back to newsreels, during the Watts riots, he went on CNN, Ralph Lamb. And he said, I'm making a public notice now because I don't know how they asked him how he would handle it. He deputized maybe 2,000 people. And we had to go out to Darwin Lamb's restaurant and bring our guns. And, anybody, and they had a curfew at 6 o'clock. Any dark-skinned people, I'm being politically correct here, dark-skinned people out on the street Shoot and kill them. Shoot and kill them. Don't arrest them. Yeah. This was on, I couldn't believe this on CNN. This guy's yeah. saying this. That had to be the end of him, right? No way. No. What? No this way. Is, this is what political power is, Alex. What all of this? No, they said, uh, this is our right? city. We run it the way we want.
don't come here and break the law. We make the law, we'll enforce it. We all imagine them. Imagine him saying that in 2022. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, times have changed, definitely. No, that's crazy. But anyway, that's actually, question. thank you, Travis. That's yeah, Travis, a, good, a great, great, thank you. Yeah, that's actually a good transition into this next question from George. Gianni, what's your best Kirk Kerkorian story? The best Kirk Kerkorian story that I, I thought was hysterical early on in my career we were making a movie called The Godfather, and Francis Ford Coppola wanted Al Pacino for Michael. And Bobby Evans, everybody was going crazy. And they, they wouldn't give it to him. And he said, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm not doing the movie. Now, the movie was already out. The scripts were out. They were casting people. They had James Caan as Michael, Carmine Caridi as Sonny, because they thought they needed a big guy. So he held out to the last minute, and they gave in. Bobby Evans and everybody's like, give him the cast he wants. But nobody realized Al Pacino signed on to a movie called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight at MGM. And... Kokorin said, no, I'm not releasing him to them. No, he's got to do my movie first. And we were ready to go. So they called a very close friend of mine. You won't believe this story. I'm glad this kid asked this. They called Sidney Korshak. As you know, Pat, we spoke about him. Mr. Yeah, he, would, he was a lawyer that uh, he, he was known as a fixer. He got a problem, see Sidney. The most powerful lawyer in the world. And I retained him, Alex, the age is 17. I went to Chicago with $10,000. He was my lawyer. <laughs> so now, Bobby Evans calls Sidney Koshak. He says, uh, you got to do me a favor. He tells him what he wants. He wants Pacino. Corey won't release him. And it's ironic that we're following a story where we just said Corey was building the biggest hotel. Yeah. So he calls Kokorian and he says, listen, you got to release Pacino. He says, I ain't releasing Pacino. I don't care what anybody says. He says, well, let me just tell you. Starting Monday, you're going to have so many labor problems on your casino. You will stop construction. You will be so over budget. Five minutes later, he calls Bobby Evans, you and mother, and cursing the guy to death. He says, you got Pacino, okay? That's a great Kikorian story, man. That's awesome. That's it. how powerful Sidney Korshak was, man. Wow. That's something right out of a movie right there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on from Mark. Hello, great podcast. Great podcast I recently discovered. I just finished the book also. In English, I am French but living in Singapore. Two questions for Gianni and Patrick. Any plans to uh, have a French translation of the book? I have so many friends in France who would love to read it. Well, I tell you, France is one of the major countries that we didn't sell foreign rights to, right, Gianni? Yeah, I know. They, they never bought them. Maybe they will now. <laughs> That's 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 surprising because we have uh, uh, countries that you wouldn't, you know, suspect of, of buying a, a book. This country in the uh, Middle East, I forgot what Turkey, somebody. Yeah. I mean, you know, but not France. 
It's you know it's it, and again we uh, we thank all our listeners. We get letters from everywhere. Now, here's a guy from Singapore. I mean, it's amazing how many people are listening to us throughout the world that are not even monitored, but they just tune in, man. It's amazing, and we yeah, appreciate all it. All over the place. And his, yeah. second, his second question was, uh, Gianni does not talk a lot about Francis, Francis Coppola. Why? Well, there's nothing to say. I did one movie with a guy. I never would think I would hear those words coming from you. How was he to work with during uh, the movie shooting? Oh, it was great to work with him because, you know, he was a young, he was only a couple of years older than me. And most people don't know. I mean, or they should know. That was my first movie. So I was in, in order just to be there. And I didn't know protocol on sets. I didn't know anything. But he, he was very easy to work for because he'd come over and say, how would you think this should be? And I said, well, you know, the, the first time I worked for the guy, the first week was my wedding in the movie. Huh. And I already had two regular Italian weddings, so I knew how, what to do at a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe you want to tell Alex and the rest of the listeners that that band was actually your band that played at your wedding. Yeah, Nino Morielli and his brother played at two of my weddings prior. Now they wow. played, they, they thought that was the greatest thing in the world because they came <laughs> to me and they did a lot of that in the movie. Uh, I forgot his name, uh, the set designer and all those, and the, everybody that was involved. Like even the bakery that made my two prior wedding cakes made the cake for that wedding. La Rosa's so pastry, La Rosa's pastry, wedding, Olympic man. Boulevard. It was like crazy. It's incredible. <laughs> so to me, it was like you know, that's the best way to get married, though. Anybody listening, in a movie, because you go home, take off the tuxedo, <laughs> <laughs> and you have to go on a honeymoon. <laughs> You know, Gianni, you had mentioned to me once as, as, as part of this question that uh, uh, Coppola had, was a little bit afraid of the extras. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, hello. A lot of wise guys, everybody was in there. In fact, well, that's why. <laughs> I know, yeah. But, well, the Colombo family, and they wanted them, believe me. They, they actually wanted them because they wanted them to, like, everybody that was sitting with Richard Conti, the Barzini character in the movie, at my wedding, they were all really Colombo guys, real guys. <laughs> so, and Lenny Montana, which people don't realize, who played Luke Obrazzi, was a collector for the Colombo family. He was an ex-wrestler. And when they saw him, they said, oh, man, that's Luke Obrazzi. And this is a fact most people don't recognize. And when you watch the movie now, you're going to say, that's right. I mean, don't, now it makes sense. Why? Why was Luke Obrazzi sitting outside the Godfather's office before going in, reading his speech? What man writes down his speech to go talk to a friend? I don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because he was studying his lines. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and Francis saw that, and they turned the camera on. And we're all saying, how could they wow. use this? The guy's reading it from a script piece page. <laughs> and if you're Luke Obrazzi and you really love the old man, you go say what you got to say, kiss him and leave. That was Nobody... a classic scene. What? That was a classic scene. It was beautiful. But think about it now, though. As a lay person, who well, the... needs to study his lines? You go tell your friend whatever. You, you're at the friend's wedding. Oh, your daughter's beautiful. What are you going to say? You're going to ad-lib it. Well, you're, you're gonna... 
study it, write it down. He can't even write, not alone read. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> is, alone read. This, this is the brilliance of Francis Ford Coppola. I know. He saw something in that, and he said, turn the camera around. Let's shoot this. That's art right there. No, yeah. I mean, he did, he did him with the little kid. When Brando was trying to make friends with his grandson in the garden, because the kid was afraid of this guy. You know, he looked yeah. like, you know, with all that straw hair and that stupid hat. And, and so <laughs> he started playing with the kid. And then he turned around and put the orange in his mouth and did that. And the kid almost died. <laughs> but he was. So that was and they was shot that. that. Was that unscripted? No, yes, all unscripted. Wow. It was brilliant. There was, like, even the cat, the cat that was walking around the set, Brando decided to pick him up and play with him. And then he asked to have a fish tank put in his office. Because when they're talking about Killy and all that, he gets up from the desk, he walks over subtly, and he feeds the fish. They're talking about murdering people. That's the brilliance of, of Brando and Coppola. Let him go. Why not? That's why this is such a masterpiece. Well, he wanted to show the human side of the Godfather. That exactly. That a mass murderer. And when you open up the movie with that, you have to you have to establish the character. They're both both brilliant. Yeah, both. Of them. No, it's it's like you said. You show the human side, the family side of this killer, of a, a mob don, but he's just a guy doing business. But uh, oh. it's a million uh, stuff that went on in that movie is amazing. Yeah, I would have never Next. done that kind of stuff. That was from Mark. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, he Mark, said, oh, thank you. Please continue yeah. the great show, which makes my day every time I listen. Well, that's a big right. compliment. It makes yeah. our day that you're listening. Tell 10,000 friends. Tell <laughs> <laughs> 10,000 friends. Yeah. All right. The next question is from Philip. Uh, he's enjoying the podcast from Toronto, Canada. He was wondering if Gianni ever met or could relate some stories concerning the great John Scorn, who was a magician and gambling authority and was an advisor to the Vegas casinos. Who? Which one? John Scar. I know. I know him very well. In fact, uh, say something, sing something. I want to pick something up. I'll be right back. No, right. because uh, I don't know that guy. I mean, the only magician I remember was Jimmy Grippo. He he worked at Caesars and did table magic. What hotel did this guy work? Um, it doesn't say that. No, he didn't. Uh, look, I was looking for his book. Uh, Scarn uh, was not only uh, a magician, he was a close-up magician. So he wouldn't be doing illusions, he wouldn't be in a main showroom, he'd be walking table to table, but his area of expertise was gambling. And he wrote a book, which I have, and you see, you see all these books behind me, I try to find his in a couple of seconds that I escaped here, but I can't find it. Uh, it's called Scarn on Gambling, and it's the Bible of Casino Games. When when got, when did he when was this what year? Uh, no, just take a guess. Who cares? Okay, I would say I would say in the mid sixties. Wow, he, he, I've got a first edition. You know what this thing is worth? I was there though. Yeah, uh, Scar on Gambling is the Bible for casino games that is still referred to, but of course some of them have changed. Like when it talks about blackjack. Oh, cheating! Use, you mean accounting? <laughs> well. No, not not only that, but how they played the odds, uh, and when people were uh, uh, building hotels and hiring experts, uh, they'd always go to Scon 
for uh, expertise. So he decided to write this book. But like when you look at the uh, the chapter on blackjack, he's only talking about one or two decks. Yeah, that's what not, not the shoe. That's when they put the 10 decks in a shoe and you yeah, can't count. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so the odds change. But he was a genius. John Scott was a genius. He's, 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 he's long gone. But you didn't know him, obviously, then. No, I, well, see, I, I only stood at the Sands Hotel, and then when they opened Caesars, I was there, for obvious reasons, and uh, they hired Jimmy Grippo, who was an amazing illusionist, and uh, I, I didn't know this guy, shocking. Yeah, it's, for those of you who want to look him up, uh, listen, S-C-A-R-N-E, Scarn. Who was that uh, magician we used to watch with the eye patch? Oh, I, I have I have him too. I'll tell you who that is. What's uh, his name, though? He was always in Vegas, right? With the okay, that patch? was that was the amazing Jonathan. Yeah, him. He was great. Yeah. I uh, I knew him well. In fact, right over my right shoulder is an autographed picture from him. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I don't think he's he's around. I think he has some. Yeah, I think some, he got sick. He got big personal health problems. Yeah. That yeah. All right, well, that question was from Philip. Thank you, Philip. Next, we have one from James. Uh, he's wondering if you guys could do an episode on Mario Puzo. We did we one. Did. You did yeah, one? We had, his, uh, we had his living girlfriend on. Yeah, in fact, oh. go through our, our catalog. It's on. I, I think you could pick them out, can't you, Pat? I'm, I never yeah, Yes. All the shows are on the podcast, as far as I know. It, it, it would be probably in year two. And it's, uh, in fact, the title of the show mentions his name, but it's his living girlfriend who we interviewed about Puzo. It's an interesting show. Puzo was a great guy. He was yeah. my house guest in the south of France, Alex. Yeah, uh, to, wow. and, you know, just uh, talking yeah, about when gambling. Pe when people, don't, said, right? people don't know, Mario Puzo wrote one of the Superman scripts. Wow. And that he wrote that. the one when Marlon Brando was Superman's father. Huh. So I had these two maniacs staying at my house in the south of France <laughs> during the Cannes Film Festival, which was amazing to have them all there. It was funny that as hell. Interesting. Marlon Brando played uh, uh, Jor-El, who was Superman's father, in the first Superman film with Chris Reeve. He got paid. He was on screen maybe five minutes. He got paid a million dollars. That was his asking oh, price. Man. And and Chris Reeves got two hundred fifty thousand for the whole three months. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you talk about uh, uh, gambling. We're just talking about John Scarn. Uh, Puzo had a bit of a gambling problem, right, Johnny? Well, not only that, you know, I I, I I'm the first time I'm going to say it, but he had a big he had a problem with the Tropicana Hotel, and that's why in the Godfather, even now the making of the Godfather, they mention that he owed money. And miraculously, it disappeared. They didn't owe the money anymore. <laughs> I went to Costello. I said, you know, th this guy just gave me this part. And he has a marker with you. He was a degenerate gambler. He was going to Vegas every weekend while he was trying to write this script. He thought gangsters hung out there. That's how crazy he was. But we eradicated that marker for 15000 for him as a favor. And does that help? Because the only replaces it with another $15,000. Oh, yeah, but I mean, it's just a debt, that's all. Yeah. No, but after a while, a lot of the casinos wanted him. Hello, he just won an Oscar. Yeah. So they did put chips in his room. Worth fifteen grand. Hello. They want him to walk around. So he went on even, he, 
And, and you know, and it's funny that because he's the wor- he had the worst luck in the world. There's only one guy I knew who had more bad luck on gambling was John Gotti. Whatever John bet, everybody bet the opposite way because they knew they'd win. <laughs> so everybody wanted to know what John was betting all the time, especially the Raven Eye, because, you know, they'd go bet the other side. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't tell him that. No. Hello. No. But uh, but I was, I was shocked to see that John actually paid his debt. I'm surprised he didn't just smack somebody and say, I ain't paying you. But anyway. <laughs> Moving okay. on. Moving on. Uh, next question is from Susan. Dear Gianni, congratulations on the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. The novel and the film was born from equal parts meticulous research and inspiration. Quickly after release, this film was embraced and heralded. Me being ardent fan of the book as well, you were Carlo Rizzi on the screen. And I can't imagine anyone in that role but you. Now for my question, what scene in the film gave you the most gratification as an actor? The last scene. The last scene. And great question. Thank you. No, because all the other scenes were very physical. And uh, I'm the only person in the world that could say Marlon Brando was my only acting teacher. And Frank Sinatra was my only singing teacher. But why I bring it up at this particular time is because when... Brando was helping me every day. Well, he used to go to, Dick Smith was his makeup guy. It took three hours a day to get him to look like that old man. Because at that time, he was in his 40s. Nobody knew that. At 48. What? He's 48. Yeah. But I'm saying, so uh, with that, I'd sit there and he'd let me because nobody wanted to, I mean, Pacino would die to sit with him. But he, he just liked me. And he wanted to help me because he knew I wasn't an actor. And he was the one that taught me, like when they hand you the, the, uh, the airline ticket. You already read the script. You already know you're going to die through the windshield. That's the next scene. But you have to project and let people think that you look down at this ticket. Maybe he's just sending me away. You know you're going to get killed. But if they know you know, the fear is not going to work. And he taught me all those things, even with the drink. When he hands you the drink, have your hand shaking because you know these guys around you were all killers. And he just told you, I killed Strachey, I killed everybody. Today I have to clean up all family business. Why is he going to let you go? That's why even when he said that line, you think I'd make my, my sister a, a widower? Come on, Carlo. Just tell me who approached you. And like a fool, in the scene I was supposed to... No, fall for that. But if Brando didn't coach me step by step, so to answer your question, the only acting I did in that movie, I think, is that closing scene. And it still stands up. Carlo was terrorized. I cried. See, most people don't know. They do a master of everybody that's in the scene. Then they come in, they do a two-shot. Then they do an over-the-shoulder. So you got to work up that emotion constantly. Wow. So, uh, yeah, the average person's not going to think about that. That gives a different perspective to acting completely. Yeah, yeah. Johnny, you, you also told me that uh, in that scene, Brando was right off camera. Yeah, he was off camera. He, and, they, and when they saw him on the set, because he was number one, we all have numbers. So the, right away, the AD said, uh, who called in number one? Number one's not, not on the call sheet today. He knew his number, obviously. He said, I know that I'm here to help Gianni. 
Awesome. Everybody got blown away. <laughs> awesome. That happened to you know, Johnny, like that. Johnny, you want to write a book? Experience. That's awesome. <laughs> I should write a book. Yeah. Yeah, you should. Think about it. It'll be one of them. Will one of the <laughs> many we're writing now. Great question, though. Thank you. Who was that guy? That was from Susan. Susan. Oh, her. Susan, where are you living? <laughs> <laughs> I know somebody named Susan. Hey, yeah. Susan. Hello, Susan. I don't think, I don't think that's on, Susan. What's next? Uh, from George Gianni. I am an associate of Joe Kennedy, who operated in New York and Las Vegas with Mr. Leo Rossini. Has been linked to providing Vegas money to different elections. Do you know any interesting aspects of Leo Rossini? No, I don't. No? No, I don't. I, I, that, I leave that up to Mr. Costello. <laughs> He never no. let me in on that stuff. Thank God. Okay, then. Uh, moving on to Meredith, then. Gianni described in an older episode the house he built in Vegas. It had a secret back tunnel that he could drive his car out the back, and the house was built on a hill. Is the house still standing today? That wasn't the Vegas house. That was my house up in Mulholland Drive. There's no hills in Vegas. <laughs> it's yeah. flat sand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that was my house in my house in Westchester Estates. Dr. Dre, all of them, uh, uh, Tommy Lee, they were all my neighbors in there. It was crazy. That place was a a great place to live. 10,000 square foot house, too. Hello. You still have it? You sold it? No, uh, I think I gave it to my mother of my last two kids. It's a nice gift. Well, not because I wanted to give it to her. (laughs) (laughs) I left the country. (laughs) Okay, next question is from James. He is an avid listener of the podcast. He's listened to all of the episodes. I listened to an episode about Gianni Agnelli, and I'm curious about the model Rolex Cellini that you discussed. I am a watch collector and would like to look at this model. Thank you, and keep up the interesting episodes. Well, the model is really not available because it was a one of a kind. Cellini designed it in 1957, and they put it in the window to be uh, to exhibit it as a one of a kind. I thought Cellini, being Italian, it was an Italian watch. I was selling ballpoint pens outside the window. I was selling, and Mayor used to give me hot chocolate. The lady, who, the sales girl. And when they put the watch in the window, I asked, is that an Italian watch? She said, no, that's the designer. And Cellini was a designer that you could hire. I think it was like $1,000 then. And he would design you a special watch, and Rolex would make it. Wow. So they made this one for Johnny and Yelly. I have it on my wrist right now. I've had it on my wrist since when I went and got it from him. uh, Show it to Alex. What's that? It's on your wrist now? Yeah. Show it to Alex. Can, can I do that? I, oh. Just hold it up. He'll see it. Oh, Alex, can you see this? Yeah, wow. All diamonds. Oh, <laughs> oh man. That's incredible. That is beautiful. 24 <laughs> carat solid gold. Show the face. Yeah. Watch. Wow. Yeah, all diamonds. Isn't that something? No, it's not. Oh. That Rolex has tried to buy it from me now because you know I have to to keep the warranty. You got to bring it in all the time, and I've I've owned it now, Jesus. And I get watch um, offers, 
And I said, don't give me a watch because, you know, I just, I wear one watch. This was a goal of mine. Imagine I was outside as a cripple selling ballpoint pens in front of the store. Yeah. Four years later, I bought it. That's incredible. I was trying to buy it, and he gave it to me. I actually transferred $9,000, which they thought would be the price of it, to Rolex in Switzerland. I went to Dole to Switzerland to meet him to get the watch. And which is a funny story because I used to beg in front of Sharon Netherlands Hotel. So I went inside there to the girls and I said, Could you write me a letter? Because I couldn't write. And they put it in the Sherry Netherlands envelope. They thought I lived at Sherry Netherlands Rolex. <laughs> and so did Inyelli. They thought I was living there. Maybe he's an heir. Who? What's he doing? That's the only reason he answered me. And in reality, you were living on bags of flour in somebody's bakery on Mott Street. Yeah, I was down in the basement oh. at night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, just so I understand this, that's the only watch of its kind, correct? Yes, the one of a kind. That's it. You better be careful wearing that thing on the streets of New York, my friend. Why? They'll, they'll take your, somebody will take your arm for that watch. Well, like so far, so far during this pandemic, three people have tried to take something from me. I broke <laughs> two kneecaps and one arm so far. <laughs> That's why I carry the cane. I do. It's a five-pound cane. Yeah, I, and, yeah, I saw that thing. Yeah, yeah, that that cane works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so James, sorry, you're not going to be able to get your hands on the Rolex. No, I don't think so. Well, he can. He can. If he comes to New York, I'll come to my house and I'll show it to you. But here we go. Okay, this uh, next question is from Jonathan Gianni. Are you still friends with anyone directly in the mob today? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, indirectly, they are. We talk about him in our book, Nick Nitty. His son, John, and I are very close in Chicago yet. And I still have business with some people. And legitimate. Everybody's legitimate now. Nobody's underground anymore. Well, there must be some. But, no, I, uh, I stayed in touch with a lot of these guys because they were my friends. I mean, they chose that life, and I chose mine. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, you grew up with a lot of those guys, right? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had to turn one away, which really bothered me. He just did 20-something years. Oh, yeah. And he looked me up to come and see me, and I said, I can't see you no more. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I got a liquor license in 73 countries, and your name came up a couple of times. Oh, and it's man. not about me. I didn't want to see you, but I'm building these businesses for my yeah. grandchildren. Yeah. And I can't have this license taken away. And he understood. But wow. that's funny. Yeah. Okay, next question is uh, from Kurt. Obviously, we've talked about you traveling all the time. He wants to know if you have any plans to travel anytime soon. He imagines uh, anyone would be eager to leave New York at the moment. Oh, he's all right. What's that? Why, why not? Traveling. Are you thinking of traveling, going anywhere? Well, we are, we're starting to open up. I will be at uh, Resorts International in Atlantic City for Columbus Day weekend. I have nine dates for the Mohegan Sun who run all those casinos. And uh, March 7th, the, the last weekend before they closed down the world, I was at Niagara Falls View at that casino. So I'm starting to get casino dates again. And I'll be at Pala Casino in Arizona again now. They opened up. So I'll be traveling. And I'm, I'm going to Greece to open a major casino. 
that they just built there for a billion six. Really? Yeah, I'll be there for, and Nick, I think it's Nikonos or wherever it is, they built it. You go online though, Mohegan Sun. The building's up, you'll see it. What, they're gonna have you cut the ribbon? No, I'm gonna be singing on stage. <laughs> Even better. better. Even better. Okay, so this is a, a general question from Howard for both of you. What really annoys you? Uh, how much Wait, time we got? How, how many more minutes we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll start with that. I got, I got a couple of pet peeves. One is, uh, as, as the listeners know, I teach on a university level. What really bothers me are teachers who show up to teach. It looks like they rolled out of bed. Hmm. I mean, these uh, it just annoys the shit out of me. I, I, it, you know, uh, even, you know, some of my students ask me, because I, I show up dressed well, jacket, tie, even on casual Fridays, I always look good. I said, because it's 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 respect for my students. Which is I true. Mean, I mean, that's, that's I could look in the mirror. I know what I look like. Right. I said, this is out of respect for my students. I think everybody should do that. That's one of my pet peeves. And the other one is at the top of the list. People who use the word hero indiscriminately they call football players heroes uh they just throw it around and uh, uh it bothers me because i've known heroes a hero is somebody who risks their life for others and they shouldn't trivialize the word and it just bothers me i never say anything about it but i think it's idiotic a football hero hey he throws a football that's all he does he's good at it granted but he's no hero Agreed. those two things everything else i can put up with <laughs> everything else <laughs> Alex, you hear that? Alex, what do you think bothers him? <laughs> Let's get the real answer. <laughs> no, hey, he's got to be very careful because he's in my will. So oh, he'll, he'll he'll watch what he says. <laughs> what about you, Gianni? You know, I've 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 had such a, a great life. There's very few things that bother me because if it bothers me, I'll correct it. And if it's somebody that's bothering me, I just get rid of them. I mean, not I shouldn't say get rid of them. I, <laughs> wait, 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 let me clean that up. I just yeah, don't bother with them anymore. No, life is too short, I think, to just for trivia stuff. Once you go through, like what Pat went through, to, you know, being in Vietnam, and when you, when you really know tragedy and, and giving up things and watching people die, whether it's in a hospital ward or on a battlefield, what could really bother us <laughs> that we can't yes. fix? <laughs> you know, with, with me, uh, th those two things to me are just lack of class. Uh, classy people, uh, I want to be around classy people because mostly classy people are uh, uh, intelligent. They've got something to say. They care. And those two things about the teacher's dressing and the, uh, the use of the word hero, uh, indiscriminately to me that that lacks class just a, just, just my thoughts yeah so it undermines the real heroes yeah yeah well, so you know uh, the problem I'm is too though i don't think it's it's getting crazier and i think it's just a, a laziness and now with this pandemic it got worse yeah i see people walking around the streets in pajamas and, sl and slippers on like uh, they can't wait to go home and go to bed again what's that about <laughs> Funny you should bring that up because that happens to be number three. <laughs> uh, people who go out, uh, like I, I, I go out uh, with 
my wife on, on Saturday, so she's a busy person. So Saturdays is our night, and we'll go to a local restaurant. Uh, I always try to look good. She always, this woman has never left the house looking poorly, ever. I've known her over 30 years. But we're not talking about women now. We're talking about men. They go out on the, on uh, on dates or with their significant other, their spouse, whatever it is. These guys look terrible for yeah. the most part. The, the reverse baseball caps, jeans that, that, that haven't been washed uh, since the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> I mean, it's just sloppy, unshaven. The women, however, most always, all the time, look good. Yeah, I see and that I'm, a lot. You guys, I see that a lot. It's great. The guys uh, in my generation focus more on comfortability, it seems. Well, the, well, we, we, we come from different times, which is one of the reasons you're on the show, to add uh, yeah. your, your ideas and, and your opinions. Uh, but we come from a different generation. And I'm thinking, and there's a, a lot of attractive women there. You know, we, we go, you know where we go, Alex. So River House, you've been there with yeah. us often. It's a nice place. And I'm thinking, uh, maybe how long are these women going to be hanging around these, these, these men that don't care about how they look? I know. You'd be surprised. Somebody come and scoop them up. I mean, no, uh, I, I think that's the only reason. <clears throat> that that, that to me, that. I'm seeing more and more of, though. That unfortunately, yeah, that, yeah. that's something else that bothers me. And once again, we go back to the uh, lack of class. No, that's but uh, I, I'm the only guy, even my houseboy Ugo, who lives, uh, he lives on the same floor down the down the hall around me. He he sees me going out for a, a three mile walk that I do every day. I get dressed to do that. I mean, dress, yeah. not with sweats. I get dressed yeah. with nice slacks. And, of course, I walk the streets. Unfortunately, people know me, and I think I, I want to represent myself looking good. Should I put yeah, a hoodie cool. on and unshaven? No. I mean, that's not who I am. But uh, people don't care. It's self-esteem, no, basically. It's a, it's, a, it's a general attitude of what's going on in this country, I think, that people just don't care anymore. No. I mean, I'm fortunate that uh, that, that's going on, that uh, we got to do something to get it back. I don't know how we're going to do that, though. That's um, a whole different uh, revelation. I was going to talk to you about this. The next presidential election, I'd like you to run. Me? I don't run for anything. (laughs) I walk slow. (laughs) (laughs) Look. Look, it's the Democratic Party, there's the Republican Party, and you're going to run on a cocktail party. There you go. Okay, and, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm voting for you. All right. How, how are we on time? we got about another five minutes. Yeah, Not okay. even. Time for one more question. There you go. All right, this one's from Alan. He uh, loved your show in the book. According to Family Lore, my aunt Annie Byer babysat for Al Capone's kid while in Miami, and her brother Dan Byer ran the Miami gambling operation. His brother Jake Beat helped him. You know anything about them? No, not at no. all. Supposedly, hey, supposedly they had a gaming and numbers operation that ran out of the room that was accessed through a fake boiler. They had it. Where was it? Where was it? They ran their gam their gaming and numbers operation through a uh, a fake boiler room. Yeah, where was where, where was, this was operation? it? Miami. Oh, Miami. Well, no. What year? That's the other thing. I. I was there early on. He doesn't mention the year. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I used to, well, I mean, I was a messenger, as we all know, for Costello. And then Maya Lansky, fortunately, who was his partner, I used to go down to Miami, you know, sometimes once a week. In fact, he, he called me. I'm doing an episode right now. 
He called me, I, I'll never forget it, in, in May of 1960. He said, come on down, I, want, I have a surprise for you. And I got down there, it was when Frank Sinatra was doing an NBC special out of the Fontainebleau welcoming Elvis Presley home. Wow. And I was privy to be backstage, watch the rehearsals with Sammy Davis and all that, and I was 16 years old. Oh and, my God. And, and Sinatra knew me already because he met me at the Copa a couple of months prior. <laughs> and he said, who's this guy? He's with Costello. Now he's with Maya Lansky. <laughs> who is this kid? <laughs> who's, the, who, who's this kid? There's no other oh, person oh. on earth that could say that about being 16. Or either that, he's 40 years old and he just looks very young. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's right. why you can see how impressed we are with your questions. We want more of them. And you know, it, 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 it amazes me when we're getting letters from Singapore, all over the world, and thank you for that. And, and share it with your friends. We, we, we're glad you enjoy it. We enjoy doing it. And... Uh, Please keep the cards and letters coming, as they used to say. <laughs> yeah, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. All right, Alex. Great job. Thank you. Thank you, yeah, Alex. Great job. I'm part of it. Keep you in the will. Alex. Yep. Please. Awesome. Mission right. accomplished. <laughs> okay. All right. All Good right. night, everybody. Good night, All everybody. Right. Be careful. All right. Bye, guys. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but Thank just you call for tuning me. in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. Call me. Don't be afraid. You can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around.